everybody and welcome to the fifth edition of Ground Control. Today we have a very special guest, the global CEO of Core Data, Andrew Inwood. Many of you uh, know Andrew from his actual participation at a number of our conferences over the years and uh, we really appreciate and, uh, and understand the extent to which uh, research now is a major part in what we are doing in the advice world. Andrew, welcome along, and thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. No, it's always a pleasure. Great, great. Uh, look, um, what is the advisor sentiment at the moment? How are people feeling? Uh, what are they telling you in the research you're actually doing with them at the moment? So advisors are split. Uh, that's a really interesting question. We've got um, two guys sitting in our offices, and I, I kind of apologise if it's happening to you, who are just calling people at the moment and asking them how they're feeling and, and what's going on and how, how business is going. So the vast bulk of advisors are just really busy with BAU, making sure that people are, are being communicated with and they're, and they're going okay. And they're, um, but there are a small number, let's say about 10%, who are, are hurting through this process. It's hurt their cash flow, it's hurt their processes, um, and I don't think it's really hurt their customers, but it's hurt their business. And it's depending on how well they're set up and how well they're moving through the, through the process, but there are a, a, an observable number who are finding, finding life hard at the moment. Yeah. So what about their clients? How, how are they feeling? Sometimes you, the, the advisors actually react um, uh, other ends of the spectrum from their clients. Well, it, Client sentiment fell off a cliff, or was pushed off a cliff, when, when we went into lockdown about uh, four weeks ago, and it fell to the lowest level we've ever seen in 20 years of tracking client sentiment. But in a, a space of uh, 14 days has rebounded quite quickly. They think we're getting through this quite well, and we're up to, we're just, just a little bit below zero in terms of client sentiment. And we've got a bunch of research which I'm happy to make available as part of this, and, I, and I'll pass it through to you. Um, and you can see that recovering very quickly. What I'm interested in, and what I think everyone's interested in, is what happens in the second wave of the coronavirus. Um, you'll have seen this, if you're all interested in statistics like me, you'll have seen this referred to as the hammer and the dance, which means that we, we've taken a very big push on coronavirus, and, and that's to get rid of the base of it, the base load of the virus, and then we're going to get a series of bounces as we move through it. So you can think about the economy in three different ways of recovery, or three different potential types of recovery, and understanding how that might happen. The one we all hope for is the V-shaped recovery, and certainly at the moment sentiment is going through a V-shaped recovery. It's gone down and it's got up. Um, the other one that might be around is a U-shaped recovery, uh, recovery, and we're wondering about how long the base of the U is, and that's going to be really interesting. And the other one is what the um, uh, economists are calling the swoosh, which is the market goes down and then it, it becomes like the Nike and it starts to go up very rapidly again. What the challenge with this is that this information system and what's happening around the world for the first time since really since the middle 80s is asymmetric markets behaving very markets around the world are behaving differently and segments inside markets are behaving very differently given what's going on so advisors are going to have to make the best of that situation and start to be able to talk candidly about the fact that information is going to be asymmetric economies are going to be asymmetric and advice and sentiments going to be asymmetric and that that makes life hard makes it means they have to do real work and understanding what's going on and on, on that's obviously really important for them to uh to get their mind around. In addition to that, I suppose we're, we're looking at um, clients acting or reacting in different ways. I did see recently that you you um, sort of put some categories around different uh, different clients and the way they op operate. 
um, such as um, uh, warriors and so yeah. what we what we look in there is a kind of what's called a post Jungian behavioral framework and understanding that is really important because if you start to segment your clients in behavior segments I was discussing this with a member of my family who's a much better research economist than me quite recently and he's a macro economist so he just likes to sit in a room and write large algorithms about what's going on and I think that's irrelevant. I'm a behavioural economist and he thinks that's irrelevant. But when you start to think about the way in which people behave and what's actually going on and you assume that people are irrational in different ways then that's really important to understand. So if you think about this in four broad categories um, you have people who are by their definition controllers. They want to take control of every situation and they're very big data crunches and they want they want to take information before they act on anything and at the moment they're doing not much then you have a group of people who are called warriors who have fear as their first decision and they run to safety all the time we're seeing a lot of these people make very bad decisions at the moment we're lucky enough in our research to have great relationships with some of the big super funds and we're watching the people who are withdrawing funds and they're watching the people who are withdrawing funds at the moment as well and seeing what we know about those people because we've done some segmentation with those people we know that the warriors are withdrawing large amounts of funds now and in reality the ones that have done it as quickly as possible are crystallizing losses then that's that's actually a really big issue then you get these people who are externalizers and they're, they're the people who push decisions away they're great clients for advisors because they just give the problem to their advisor and say you do it I don't want to talk about it you just do it and then you get a group of people who are avoiders and they're the people who don't want to have a discussion about it because discussing it's painful and you have to deal with the pain of either past loss or future decisions or, or all those types of th things if you can start to think about your segments your customers in that segment and make sure that when you're communicating with them that you have a piece of information in the communication which meets those segments the controllers want to know the numbers how much is this going to cost the warriors want to know that you've got it and that everything's okay the externalizers are kind of wanting the same message well you've got it so i don't have to worry about it and the avoiders well kind of who cares because they're not going to do anything anyway. Right. And is there a particular type of advisor you think excels in this type of environment? Um, what are the sort of characteristics that they may actually exhibit? So the characteristics are relatively common and there's a huge amount of information and research about who excels in this. The reason for that there's a huge amount of information in this is because um, the military and particularly the American military have spent a huge amount of money on understanding how groups of people work in asymmetry because warfare is by its nature asymmetric, right? As soon as you get under pressure and decisions have to be made, what's the type of information that the people who are acting and reacting want to, want to have? So the most powerful thing is that you set a theme, this is what we're trying to achieve. You set short objectives, this is what we're doing, and, th and that you keep the frequency of that conversation up. As the warfare becomes more asymmetric and the data becomes more jumpy, you increase your frequency of communication and you decrease your term, this, the term in which you're acting. We're doing this this month, we're doing th this next month, and we're doing the, this in the next few months. Even in my little business, we've, we've broken it into four clumps, which is resilience, what do we have to do to understand what's going on? 100 days, right? Working out what we have to do to understand what's going on. Rebuild what we have to do to actually make it do the best out of this out of this environment. So that's going to take some time. Reboot and refresh. So that all those things can understand. The same thing is going to be in the client's mind. What do we have to do to make sure that we don't lose any money through this situation? How do we make the smallest possible loss? Then how do we make the best advantage of what's going on? And then how do we set ourselves up for, for the future? And making sure that you're actually having that conversation about the future is really important. 
clearly age age and life stage depend de de determine term like how far out they're looking and you have to be sensitive about that all the time right okay um, from the perspective of looking out um, and understanding what that 12 month outlook might be um, have you got any clues for us with all the knowledge and information you collect from clients both uh, here in Australia and around the world so one of the things that we look at um, and look at behaviourally is what the very rich are doing because there's a couple of reasons for that. One is it's self-actualising, they're in the market and therefore making decisions. And the other is that if money is a score of achievement, which it happens to be for most of the very rich, they tend to pay a lot of attention to it. And that's segmented around the world. In Western Europe, particularly, they're very worried about what the future is. They think that long-term recession is inevitable there. Um, there is a bunch of conflicting data at the moment. The, uh, the World Bank, the IMF, and, uh, and some of the bigger, more significant monetary operations around the world say that long-term recession and pretty bad recession is inevitable because of the way in which money is being stripped from the economy. Whereas um, the markets aren't displaying that. The markets went down 20% and came, uh, came back up 20%. So we don't know who's got a better view of, of what the future holds for us. One of the things that we do know is that whole sectors of the economy are going to take a very long time to recover. And you can start to slice those in different ways. You can start to say, well, travel's gone. Airlines are gone. Yield from yields from from things like um, airports are gone, at least in the short term. Oil may not yet recover because of the way in which those things are operating. Property is going to be very different. Shopping is going to be very different. So this has percolated a lot of a lot of big um, changes to the market. And understanding how that's going to work out is is quite interesting. If you look into the market's big economies, um, I don't think it's going to affect Japan particularly. Although Japan has got a, a whole bunch of other issues, um, the Near East has got has yet to see what this problem looks like. Um, the US and Western Europe, we don't really know. There's a great business called Good Judgment Incorporated, which has this, has this focuses on the, what, what they call super forecasters. There's this idea in economics where there are a small group of people, for whatever reason, who are really good at making predictions. What, when you're looking at prediction, you're looking at a narrowness of range. So as, the, as your information becomes more symmetrical, the range on the decisions making shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. The range on the effective economies in the, around the world at the moment from the best available sources is still so broad that the honest answer is nobody really knows. <laughs> and, and that's quite interesting in itself, right? Yes, certainly is. Look, and I think that's uh, the, the challenge. We were talking the other day about the states and uh, the US, from that perspective, um, they're broken now in effectively four different markets. Um, from your perspective, you know, we, we've, uh, we've talked about, you know, California and the size of California. It's its own in environment. Uh, we saw the pictures of people on the, on the beaches sunning themselves in, uh, in the, on the Californian beaches in the last day or so. Um, how do you think the US is actually going to play out? Uh, are they going to be able to get themselves back together again? It is a consumption-based economy. Well, it is. It's also a production-based economy. There's a kind of bunch of markets in the world that historically people have made big mistakes in terms of betting against. And there's uh, hundreds of jokes uh, about this now. Um, you know, I, I always wondered why I was afraid of clowns and then one became president of the United States and all, all, all those types of things. But you wouldn't bet against the market. And you think about the US as being a consumption economy. It's also the most powerful manufacturing economy. One of the great ways to think about this is that the things that the US makes and makes well is it tends to be high tolerance machining. And they still sell a lot of that. And the greatest example of that is the iPhone. The Apple makes $800 per, on every iPhone. That's about as much as BMW make on a car in the first instance. So that's a highly effective 
expensive uh, way of manufacturing things and they tend to dominate that space and China and other markets are catching up very quickly but they still dominate that space. What's interesting to me in that market is about the plasticity of employment and that's a really big issue. I belong to a group of um, investors in the US. As you know, we have a, market, a business in the US and I get to phone in and listen to the, uh, into the um, investment market analysis there. And the advice and the people who are in businesses my size was to lay off 30% of your staff. In the US, they can do that like that. There's no restriction in doing it. So that's a significant um, impediment to growth and people think that employment is part of the plasticity and that's, that's quite interesting. The size of the COVID problem there is much more significant than in Australia and I think potentially more significant than we think it is. Um, one of my great kind of high school and university friends is a surgeon in the US and he's in San Diego and they have more people on respirators in San Diego in the hospital that he's in than all of Australia and he's getting six more every day. Wow. Yeah, so this is, we don't even hear about the San Diego market, but that's a big market, right? And, that, and it's in California, obviously, but that's, that's actually going through the process. So that may go longer and deeper than, um, than it has in Australia. And their ability to act as a cohort, which I think we should be reasonably proud of in Australia because we've acted as a cohort, um, then it is much different to ours. And you've seen the, the, phone, the photographs of people revolting on the street and people saying we've got to open the markets um, and talking about it in that way. This is just a really interesting problem that we're facing and, and people will study this time in the future. It's true that West Germany, Australia, the, um, New Zealand, um, um, some of the other Scandinavian nations have pushed their economies off a cliff and sacrificed it for lives. They've sacrificed their economies for lives. This is a human tragedy, but it will be an economic tragedy as well as that, as that plays out. Um, it's also true that in places around the world, they've refused to do that. Sweden is the clear example where they've gone for herd immunity, but we, we don't know yet what the long-term economic damage of that is and how much it is per life. And there's kind of horrible statistics running around now of saying, well, how much a life? It's about 150 billion a quarter in the Australian economy, and we're, I think, about going to be about 100 dead by the time this is over. You know, that's three billion a life, and that's a pretty unpalatable way to think about think about the world. But that's the way economists think. Yeah. Look, so obviously, um, from um, behavioural economist perspective, the, the the way that the Australian people have reacted to the process. Um, there, there's obviously always going to be a line that uh, will happen where it'll be crossed um, from the point of view of the extent. Uh, how long do you think we could have gone before that line would have been crossed? We track the tension, and, and I'm happy to share this with you, that's occurring in the marketplace. The mental health stress figures were up, and up quite strongly. People were finding it hard to be alone. I mean, it's a little bit like that loneliness and the tension shines a light on any sort of mental health problems that exist inside a community. We were pretty good because we were pretty relaxed. Around the world, that's become significant. Um, in one of the... In my desperate attempt to lose weight, I'm doing a huge amount of walking. Unfortunately, at the end of each piece of walking, I tend to buy a cup of coffee and sit on the sand and, and, and take some time. Um, last week, I was um, made to move on by two policewomen. Unfortunately, my legs were so sore, I said, you're going to have to give me a minute here. And they were very polite about that. And as I was walking away with them, I was asking what they were seeing commonly. And they saw domestic abuse through the roof. And yeah, terrible. Well, and then I asked them, well, commonly, what type of domestic abuse is it? It was young men on their mothers who were refusing to be locked down. 
and didn't want to stay at home. So the costs of this emotionally and the costs of this um, uh, in terms of mental health are going to be significant. Um, there's a great thing that I'm sure you've all heard of. At the time that, that Isaac Newton was um, at, in, at university, he was sent home because there was a TB outbreak at the, at the college that he was at. And he came back having solved the theory of relativity. Some people do isolation really well. For other people, it, it, it's really hard. And, and I've got to f admit that, you know, I've been doing lots of Zoom cocktail parties, Zoom meetings with my, my family and friends, but it's not the same. I think when the lockdown um, comes, when lockdown is eased and the local pub opens again, one of the first things I'll do is go and sit with my friends and have a quiet drink, yeah. but, you know, and really look forward to it. Yeah, I think we're all looking forward to it. When, when we think we look back in, 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 say, 12 months' time or even two years' time, what do you think advisors should have learnt from this, uh, this period of this black swan event? Well, there's really an interesting, uh, interesting point around this, and there's some research to come which I'm happy to share with you when it comes out about how those who were advised and those who didn't advise behaved. We're gathering that data quickly, and I think the clues are already there. Those who are in advice relationships are much more confident about their future than those who are outside of advice relationships. But well, let's get the data before we make any assumptions. I think that we've been, because we're cheeky, having good relationships with the groups of advisors, and we've been mapping the different types of advice behaviour. It's unfortunate to say, but there are still a small number of advisors who under pressure just evaporate, stop answering the phone, stop uh, talking to people. And there are another group of advisors who just buckle down and work harder. And it's again, it's back to that American military research. When the, when the market is complicated, communicate more. It's short, punctuated, clear pieces of communication that tell people what's going on. And mapping the customers of those advisors, you can see the satisfaction levels haven't moved. Their, their intentions haven't moved, their, their, their adhesion to the plan hasn't moved, they get it, they know what's going on, and they're sticking with the plan. So that was the critical message. The frequency of communication becomes absolutely critical. Great, okay. And don't send emails during Easter. Don't, they don't get read, because we've watched that data as well. <laughs> Interesting uh, piece of information. Andrew, look, thanks very much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Uh, we know you're very, very busy and, and we really value the research that you and Core Data are, are, are doing now but, and also over the years. And we look forward to uh, seeing more of that research as we, uh, as we go through and hopefully out of the lock lockdown and to see the way that people are actually uh, dealing with things. It's great to see sentiments in a V-shaped v recovery already. Let's hope the economy heads in that direction as well. Any luck. Yeah, let's hope so. Uh, thank you once again uh, for listening to our fifth version of Ground Control. We hope you find uh, that very, very useful. It's been a great honour to have with us our, uh, the global CEO of Core Data, uh, Andrew Inwood, uh, to share some of the insights with us. Uh, thank you once again and we look forward to chatting in the near future.